Hello and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I am Holly Spear. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Kylie Colwell. And this is our first fan suggestion case. Oh. So I'm very excited. This case was recommended to us. And I'll drop a subtle plug at the end of the episode on who suggested it. But this is the Mickey Mouse murder. And it is local to me in Arkansas. And I had actually never heard of it when someone suggested it. So I was very shocked and surprised. And she suggested it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'll look into it. And then I was just like laying in bed that night. And you know how YouTube like keeps playing, you know, videos that they suggest. So this came across and I was like, what? Okay, I have to do it now. So are you talking about like in in like Russellville? So this is in Fort Smith. So very close. There's a lot of shenanigans over where you're from. Apparently, I I feel like you have a lot of local cases. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there is a lot of Florida cases, too. Oh, God, yes. I mean, yeah, but like we could do just a show in Florida. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I haven't heard of this story. Okay, very cool. I mean, yeah. So let's just hop right into it. It's been said a thousand times. We never thought it would happen here. It seems like this is said in every true crime story surrounding a sleepy small town. But this is exactly what happened in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1994 in what is known to some as the Mickey Mouse murders. Fort Smith is the third most populous city in Arkansas of about 89,142 people. Fort Smith lies on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. This is where Missy or Melissa Witt, who's 19 years old, lives with her mother. Melissa worked hard. She had gone to college this year at West Art Community College in her town of Fort Smith. Missy was an honor student, and she was going to college to be a dental hygienist. And she still worked part-time at a local dental clinic as a dental assistant, which was a job that she had gotten in high school. Melissa was like any other child at the time. She would hang out with her friends on the weekends and spend time trying to make whatever fun she could as a 19-year-old in this small town. Melissa's mother was a single mother, and it was said by some of Missy's friends that her mother was strict. However, as strict as she was, she could not keep Melissa safe from everything. And on December 1st, 1994, everything would change. The day began normally. Missy got up early and got ready to head to campus for her first class of the day. Before leaving, Missy asked her mom if she could borrow some money. Marianne, Melissa's mother, said no, she couldn't. They had a small disagreement between themselves about the money. But Melissa got over it and she continued throughout her day. Missy went to her classes at West Art Community College. At lunch, she met up with her friend. They met at a Chick-fil-A down the road from the college. Missy then heads to her work shift at the dentist office. At 5 o'clock, Missy gets off. She goes to start her car and realizes that it's dead. It dawns on her that she had left her lights on before leaving. Coworkers said they got the help of someone next door, and Missy got her car jump-started, and it started working again. Melissa, or Missy, I kind of use them interchangeably because some people call her Missy, some people call her Melissa. She arrives back home 45 minutes later. On the kitchen countertop, she finds a note from her mother. The note says, Missy, I love you. I hope you had a good day at school and work. If you see this note, please come and see me at Bowling World. It's league night. I will buy you a burger. I'm sorry we argued this morning. I love you, Mom. So Melissa's mom was in a bowling league and they met 
at Bowling World once a week. So she changed out of her work scrubs into a white V-neck sweater and blue jeans. This was reported by her next door neighbor who saw her coming and going from her home. She headed to go meet her mom at the bowling alley. Missy would pull up and park in the parking lot of the bowling world. She got out of her car and started to head inside to see her mom when, all of a sudden, she was attacked. Missy called out for help through the parking lot of the bowling alley, but no one heard her cries. Missy fought for her life as the attacker attempted to take Missy. In the altercation, Melissa was hit on the right side of her head. The hit caused a contusion and a massive amount of bleeding, leaving pools of blood and a trail from her car to the assailant's vehicle. Missy was overpowered and was forced into the vehicle and taken from the parking lot, never to be seen again. Marianne had her bowling night, never knowing that her daughter was being brutally attacked and taken just feet from her. Marianne returned home that night to find the house empty. Melissa had never returned home. Hours go by and Marianne begins to worry. She waited and waited, anxiously anticipating Missy to walk through the door. Unable to relax, Marianne calls Tara, Melissa's best friend. She asks if she's heard from Melissa. Tara said that she had not, but she told Marianne that Melissa and her had a biology class together on Friday and they had plans to hang out afterwards. At 9 a.m., Melissa is reported missing by her mom. Marianne knew Missy would never not come home, and her intuition led her to report Missy missing immediately. The officers did tell Marianne what we all hate to hear, that Melissa is 18 years old and she can leave on her own accord. Police asked Marianne if Melissa had any reason to leave or if there had been an argument. Marianne is honest with the police and she tells them, yes, she and Melissa had had a small argument before she left that day about money. As it so often is, hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking back, an officer of the Fort Smith Police Department said that the officer taking the report misunderstood and assumed that Melissa had gotten mad at her mom and decided just not to come home and concluded that there was no reason to believe that she had been abducted. Unfortunately, and unknowingly to Mary Ann, this would alter how Melissa's case was treated in the next few critical days. The officer assured Mary Ann that Melissa would come home. Melissa's case was labeled as a runaway adult. But Mary Ann is persistent and convinced the officers that although she is 18 and could technically leave, that Missy would never do that. The argument was nothing so serious that it would cause her not to come home. Friends and family filled the gaps and started distributing flyers and posters early and asking everyone they could talk to if they had seen Melissa. Townspeople in the River Valley community were pulling together and passing out missing flyers by the hundreds. The first day, over 1,500 flyers were run. Billboards were thrown up and the search increased by the minute. Word spread. Media picked up the case early on and it gained traction. Three days later, the case was taken out of the classification of a runaway and officers began looking for Missy. The case was transferred to the Fort Smith Major Crimes Unit. But as we know, in an abduction case, the most important time is the first 48 hours, and we are well past that time. I have a question. Yes. Did she drive to the bowling alley from her house? Yes. So I'm assuming her car was not at the bowling alley because her mom would have seen it there when she left? So, yeah. I don't want to spoil it. Okay. Nope, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. She did make it to the bowling alley and never made it inside, and she drove there. Okay. All units were on the lookout for Melissa Witt, a white female, 19 years of age, 135 pounds with hazel eyes, brownish blonde hair, 
last being seen Thursday, December 1st. Missy was missing, and her car was too. The whole college campus was searched. Soon as that new Missy reiterated what her mother already knew. This was not like Melissa. She was too responsible to disappear for any period of time. Police then go to the dental clinic where Melissa worked. Melissa's co-workers tell the police that it was a normal day at the office. Missy had worked her shift, and then she had gone home. But they did remember that before Missy left, her car battery had died, and she had to have help jumping it. The car not starting was a focus at the beginning of the investigation. Police needed to determine whether there was really a battery issue or whether someone had tampered with the vehicle. Police investigate and it was discovered, unbeknownst to Marianne, at about 6.30 p.m., a witness heard a woman in distress at the Bowling World parking lot. Wait, and they didn't do anything? Yeah. Okay, so it's a young boy. He was 10 years old. Okay. He was at the bowling alley with his mom and the young boy who the young boy's mother actually happened to be bowling with Marianne Witt on the league. So the boy's mom told him to go outside and get his school books from her car. The boy remembered hearing a woman scream and could make out the words, help me. But he didn't see anyone in the parking lot. Okay, so the young boy just basically didn't understand the gravity of what he had heard and he walked back inside. He told his mom that he had heard a man and woman fighting in the parking lot, and the mother dismissed it. Police start with the last place Melissa was seen. Um, The bowling world did have cameras, and they actually regularly hired private security for their building. But, unfortunately, they weren't working. As we can guess, they were not pointed in the right direction, and I don't think they were working. And the security guard only worked on the weekends when the alley was especially crowded and Melissa had gone on a Thursday. So, meaning there's no evidence to be gained from the parking lot. Wait, okay. Because you mentioned she got hit in the head. And I'm assuming physically hurt in other ways. Is there any blood in the parking lot? Okay, there is. And so at first, this was not found, but it is later. And there is blood. I'm surprised it, I don't know, if I guess if it didn't rain, it lasted that long because no one is really oh, no. even looking at first. Okay. Yeah, no one is, yeah, no one's looking here at first. I guess no one at this point had known that she had actually gone to Bowling World. Yeah. They knew that the, I mean, they should have known from the note on the counter, but I guess that just, I don't know. I, I think they lost two critical time in the beginning and were just kind of not they were not putting the right pieces together yeah so no one was looking at the bowling world first thing they did was look at the cameras they weren't working they're still searching um but we're about to get to the blood in the parking lot so police expand and they asked stores surrounding the bowling alley if they have cameras that could capture anything A nearby convenience store did have cameras, but after looking at the footage, it was just too far away to see anything useful. Everyone else at Bowling World that night was interviewed, but it seemed like everyone else was inside at the time. At 7.45 p.m., a family of customers that were at Bowling World were walking through the parking lot when a member of the family looked down and noticed car keys laying on the asphalt in the middle of the parking lot, and they were turned in to the front desk of Bowling World. So this is before 7.45 p.m. This is before police even know that she's missing. So we're kind of backtracking a little bit, but these keys have been turned in. 
The next day, December 3rd, Melissa's 1995 Mitsubishi Mirage was found at the Bowling World parking lot. I think Melissa's mom didn't notice the car on the first because it was a very crowded night at the Bowling World. And her mom had left thinking that Melissa hadn't decided not to come that night and was just probably hanging out with her friends. So her mom left the bowling alley having no reason to look for Melissa's car at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Police investigate the scene and her car showed signs of a struggle. Police found a gold hoop earring with blood on it and a crushed hair clip and pools of blood around Missy's car. The blood left a trail that went from row to row, starting where Melissa's car was to another row of cars and then abruptly stopped. And it was, of course, discovered later that the keys had been found in the parking lot matched the car. It was also later discovered that there was a keychain on the fob that spelled out Missy, and it was splattered with blood. The blood splatter on the keychain was not super obvious. If you didn't know it was there, you would probably have to be looking for it. So it made sense that no one really noticed when the keys were turned in. It's obvious to police that Melissa did not leave on her own. She was taken and she put up a fight. But she was either drugged or carried from her car to another vehicle. The question still remained, where is Missy? The possibilities seem to get more and more grim, and her family is desperate to get Melissa home. People frantically search even harder for Melissa. She's in distress somewhere, and judging by the amount of blood, she's hurt. January 11th, police receive a phone call. The call was made to the major crimes unit line, and a voicemail was left. On the other end of the line, which I don't understand, I don't know if it was like after hours or nobody answered or what, but this is just a voicemail. So, hate that for us. On the other end of the line was a lady's voice. The voice said, go ahead and tell them what you found. Then a younger male's voice could be heard saying, I can't. And then the line was disconnected. Both voices were described as being very Southern. Of course, at the time, there was no caller ID, so no one could be called back and it cannot be traced. Police have always found the call suspicious, and many believe that it could be linked to Melissa's case. Because, only two days later, on January 13th, Melissa's body is found in the Ozark National Forest. This was 45 miles from the town of Fort Smith in the Bowling World parking lot. Two trappers were looking for a deer on a service road north of the town of Ozark. This is an isolated and desolate area filled with miles and miles of forest. There are dirt logging roads scattered throughout the forest. The two men had been down this path almost every day. They had never noticed a nude body lying face down. Of course, the trappers initially thought that they had stumbled upon a stray mannequin in the wild. Another one. Another Another mannequin in the Mm -hmm. wild. In the wild. But it was not a mannequin, as we all know. And Melissa's body was found what many sources describe as a headstone-shaped rock. Melissa had died by strangulation and had been assaulted. However, due to the advanced stage of decomp to the lower half of Melissa's body, there is no usable evidence to be found from the assault. Police are fairly certain that this was Melissa. After being sent to the coroner, the body was so badly decomposed in the Ozark elements after 45 days that visual identification was impossible. The ID was made from dental records. Meanwhile, the town waited to hear the news that they were expecting. Melissa Witt had been found. The body of Melissa Witt had been found. This would drastically change the atmosphere in the small town of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Parents began to worry about their young teenage children. People began to start locking their doors for the first time, and a curfew was implemented by the city. 
If a straight-laced college student could be kidnapped in a crowded bowling alley parking lot at dusk, then no one was safe. So, as I said before, she was missing her clothes and any personal belongings. One of the personal belongings that was missing is Melissa's Mickey Mouse watch that she was wearing that day. This watch was given to her as a Christmas present by someone in her family. Cigarette butts and paper were found by the body. Melissa had been abducted and driven to the desolate area of the Ozark National Forest, a couple of miles from the road called Tucker Bend. It was a logging road and it was used by many hunters and trappers. Police do know that the autopsy revealed that Melissa was strangled facing down. This is known because there was vegetation found in her windpipe. So she had been breathing in dirt and debris around her. The wound on her head that was sustained at the bowling alley was ruled not to be fatal. This means that Melissa was taken and killed in the Ozark National Forest at or near where her body was found. Police believe that Melissa's body had been in the forest since she was missing. Melissa had been killed on the same day of her abduction. However, chillingly, police believe that Melissa's body has also been moved. So she was found at the foot of what was described as a headstone-like rock. Evidence shows that Melissa's body was behind the rock and hidden at first from the road, and she was actually sitting up, but her body had been drug out by her arms to be in front of the rock where it was found. Investigators know this because there are marks on Melissa's body consistent with dragging, and there are also drag marks on the ground. Police know that it had to be a human to move Melissa's body and not animals or any elements. There were no claw marks or teeth marks that an animal would have to make to move her body. Oddly, the moving of her body would make it more likely to be found. Behind the rock was more hidden from the road and passerbyers. This is also supported by the fact that the trappers that found Melissa apparently had driven that road every day and passed that exact spot, but yet they had never seen Melissa's body. Medical examiners and police believe, based on decomposition, that Melissa's body had been in that area the whole time she was dead. Police are perplexed on why someone, seemingly the killer, would come back and move her body to where it was more likely to be found. Police think back to the weird call. They start to theorize that maybe the caller was the one that moved the body so that it could be found. Remember, this was the caller that had a woman's voice saying, tell them what you saw, and the male saying, I can't. I just think this is weird all around, just because if you can't talk about the body to report it to police because it's too disturbing, which it would be, then how could you touch it to move it? And just it just seems off, you know? Yeah, I don't think that's it. Yeah. Or there's more to the, it's It's either not related or there's more to the story. So police believe that another possibility is either the killer wanted the body to be found to bring more publicity because it had died down since Melissa was declared missing or out of some kind of remorse for the family and community still looking for Melissa. With no leads, police begin looking through local people's criminal records. Police start with questioning their list of sex offenders. It would not be for two more years that the sex offender registry in Arkansas would be enacted. Hundreds of people were interviewed. With no luck, police turned to the public. They issued a plea of public support. Anyone that was at Bowling Alley on December 1st was to call the Fort Smith Police Department. A caller claimed that at 6 p.m., December 1st, they saw a white female matching the description of Melissa arguing with a black male in the parking lot. Rumors spiraled that Melissa was into drugs and owed money to a drug dealer and that she had been kidnapped and taken over state lines to Fort Coffee, Oklahoma. 
Some even claim to have seen Melissa being held hostage. Police say that nothing in Melissa's background suggests that there is any credit to these stories. Her friends and family know nothing about a secret life that Melissa has ever had. There has never been any evidence that these rumors have any truth. After weeks of no leads, a young woman who wished to remain anonymous and her parents called into the police department. The young woman and her family were at the bowling alley the night Missy went missing. The young girl said she could hear people arguing in the parking lot. She remembered hearing words like, stop, leave me alone, and go away. She said that looking back, it didn't sound like Melissa was scared. It didn't sound like she was fighting with a stranger. She said it actually sounded like an argument that you would have with a spouse. Kind of like, stop, I've had enough for the day. At this time, no one knows anything about any boy that Melissa is talking to or any significant other. So the girl said it was not uncommon for the bowling alley to be loud and for people to be getting a little rowdy there. When her family returned home, the young girl asked her dad if she thought the police had been called on the couple arguing. The young girl's father didn't remember hearing an argument and dismissed this at first. However, when Missy's car was found, the father started asking again what exactly his young daughter had heard. They drove back to Bowling World and the father tried to jog his daughter's memory. The young girl pointed to where she heard the argument coming from and it was in the exact direction of where Missy's car was found. Police deem the tip to be credible and the young girl is actually hypnotized to see if there's any evidence if they can pull out of her memory. So police believe that this woman heard the abduction of Melissa Witt and was likely the last person to hear Melissa alive. Then we have a possible witness come forward. A local man claims that on December 4th, he was hunting in the forest when he saw a man changing clothes outside of a dark gray or black car on the same road Melissa's body was found. The man noticed that the car had a decal on the back right glass that was purple or blue. The witness said that the man seemed out of place, that he had no hunting gear with him, and he did not look like he was there to hunt, like most people that would come down this road. The man was in a car that would not usually be seen on a desolate road. To understand this, you really have to understand this area of Arkansas. It would not be common to find a car down this path. Usually, only vehicles going down this path would be a Jeep, a truck, or something with four-wheel drive. Growing up around here in mountains like this, I can promise that there are places that you would go and you would be like, how did this car get here? Like, this is not, this is out of place, you know? So this man was white and he was about 20 to 30 years old, about 5'11 and around 130 pounds and had curly hair. So just to point out, the past witness had said that it was a black male. The male is definitely white. So police believe that Melissa's killer lived around or is very familiar with the Ozark Forest. They believe that the location is specifically significant to the killer. The location is so remote, it is not a convenient random spot. Officers state that at this location, you can go any time of day, day or night, and scream at the top of your lungs and no one would ever hear you. One day, reporter Marcus Blair was flipping through various newspapers when he suddenly recognized something eerie. A newspaper out of Houston, Texas. A very, very similar case. The killing and abduction of Melissa Trotter by Larry Swearigan. Melissa Trotter, who was also 19 years old, went missing on December 8, 1998, in Willis, Texas. She was abducted, she was also a college student, and she was found in a forest. Both yeah. girls had been strangled, and Larry was known to be in Arkansas at the time that Missy was abducted, and the girls look very, very similar. And they have the same name. And they have the same name. 
Yes. Which I don't know if that's a coincidence, but as soon as you said it, I was like, wait a minute, I have to think of her last name right now. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And that was in Texas? Isn't yes, in Willis, Texas. And this is not all of the similarities. Most chillingly is that both Melissa Trotter and Melissa Witt were wearing a Mickey Mouse watch that was taken by the murderer. Wait, both of them were wearing Mickey Mouse watches? Yes. Wait. (laughs) I was waiting. I was like, when does Mickey Mouse come up in this story? And they were both, I mean, they weren't children. No, both 19. Okay. To be fair, I have a Mickey Mouse watch. No, I bet you do, Holly. But like, you better not wear it. Don't wear it. (laughs) I mean, no, when I was writing this, I was like, wow, this is creepy. I cannot wear my watch and not think of this ever again. Okay. But for the Texas Melissa, we have the killer. Yes. Okay. Tell us. Okay. So Trotter left a study session at her college at about 1.15 p.m. on December 8th and met up with Larry in the student center. Larry claimed he left without her. However, other students claimed that they saw Melissa eating alone or with another man. Larry immediately became a suspect since he was seen with Melissa at the college the day she went missing. And likely because Larry was, as he described himself, a violent screw-up. Larry had already had many run-ins with the law. He was under indictment for kidnapping his ex-fiance. A student at the college claimed Melissa had told them that she and Larry were dating. On the afternoon of December 8th, the day Melissa had gone missing, Larry's wife, I guess he's married, came home to find their home and their bedroom in disarray. Larry then made a false police report that his home had been burglarized and his property had been stolen. He also lied to police about his whereabouts and fled in a stolen truck when police moved in to arrest him on December 11th. Police searched his trailer twice. Later, Melissa's body was found in the Sam Houston National Forest with a leg of pantyhose wrapped around her neck. On January 2nd, 1999, a third search uncovered what prosecutors called the smoking gun. Another half of pantyhose, authorities said, was a match for the pantyhose that was used to kill Melissa. The defense presented new evidence that seemed to show that the pantyhose did not match. They also presented pathology experts who said Melissa's body was in the woods for 25 days and that his experts had concluded that her body was there for no more than 14 days and therefore he could not have killed her because he had already been arrested by then. The defense also claimed that the blood under Melissa's nails was from a man but not from Larry. The state lab issued a letter saying that the technician had no grounds for such testimony. Larry also points out that they were dating, and this is why her hair would be in his truck. And yes, there was also her hair found in his truck. Larry continued to maintain his innocence. The prosecution claims that his experts' opinions do not hold water and that there is a mountain of evidence to convict him. They also claim that Larry tried to convince another inmate to confess to the murder of Melissa. Larry is convicted and found guilty of Melissa's rape and murder. After many appeals and even representation from the Innocence Project, Larry's appeals are denied, and he is the 12th inmate to be put to death in 2019. Wait. Okay. I am a big fan of the Innocence Project. I've done a lot of stuff regarding them. Um do we think he was innocent? Because there were kind of some things pointing towards he potentially could have been innocent on this. It was, for me, it was a bit, it was a bit shocking. I mean, 
they said the pantyhose was a match. They said that his DNA was under her nails. He comes back and says, it's not mine. The evidence was contaminated. They say that's not true. I mean, they technically do have DNA evidence, but they were dating and her hair was in his truck, but they're dating. You know, I don't know. It is. It's a bit weird. And on the third search of his trailer, they found matching pantyhose. So, and he says they don't match. Even if they did, if they were dating at some point, they could have, it could have been there. Yeah. I'm more, I'm more shocked about the Innocence Project taking this case on. I was shocked about that too. And then he was put to death anyways, which happens a lot of the times with the Innocence Project. They're usually doing death row cases. Okay. Okay. So he's gone. He did. Yes. Which is, which is another, I mean, however you feel about the death penalty, but that's another reason that it's unfortunate that he is not around to you won't get any more answers yeah it's over at that point you know no i think if he's a suspect or a person of interest or they're looking into someone on death row for another case hold off on the execution yeah 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 to each their own on the death penalty you know everybody can have their own opinions but i'm i'm gonna have to look this up under the innocence project because i want to see what they said yes do so So, in 2000, a local suspect surfaced named Charles Ravines. Charles had been arrested for breaking into the home of a young woman who he beat and tried to sexually assault in her own home. Ray was raised in a normal home and was respected in his community. He worked in construction and was also, and also helped his father, who was a mortician. He had a family, kids, and many friends. No one could have suspected what the arrest of Vines would reveal. After his attempted assault, police would question him, and it was discovered that he had an obsession with assaulting young girls and necrophilia. Oh, and he's a mortician. Yeah. Convenient, I might say. Interesting. After his arrest, Vines admitted to brutally assaulting and murdering an elderly woman named Juanita Woford in 1993 and another woman named Ruth Henderson. Police realized suddenly that they are dealing with a possible serial murderer and rapist. While in jail, police visit Vines and interview him extensively about Melissa's case. Based on police opinions after the interviews, Vines is no longer suspected of being involved in Melissa's murder. Police must not have believed that he was involved because they never took any further action regarding her case. Vines was convicted of capital murder of both Ruth Henderson and Juanita Woford in 2000. In 2019, Vines dies in prison of natural causes. Again, like Larry, never having admitted to anything related to Melissa's case. Unfortunately, this is an unsolved case, and this is where it sits today. Melissa's mother passed away in 2011 at the age of 75, without ever getting to see the person responsible for her daughter's murder be brought to justice. Fort Smith police have stated that they still have all of the evidence from Melissa's case, and that the evidence is still testable. However, the question is who to test it against. Twelve detectives have worked the case of Melissa Witt since 1995. Detectives that have taken Melissa's case agree they believe Melissa knew her killer. Detectives believe that the killer struggles with relationships. He has an uncontrollable rage against women. He likely has charges related to domestic abuse. He has legal and drug trouble. He likely has a criminal record. He likely stalked Melissa and knew her routine. He waited on her and knew that she would show up at the bowling alley and that she would be alone in the parking lot. They also believe that this case is solvable. 
They just need the right tip or the right person to come forward. This Mickey Mouse watch might be the missing piece to the puzzle. The watch was expensive enough to have a serial number on the box and a serial number on the watch that matches each other. And police know the serial number on the box. There is still a $5,000 reward for the information leading to the arrest and conviction of Melissa. Someone knows what happened to Melissa. But for now, the case of Melissa sits cold. And that is the case of the Mickey Mouse murders. <laughs> that old lady on the phone call better come forward. She's probably better. dead. I hope she wasn't that old. It's been almost 30 years, you know? Like, <sighs> Okay. Um, can I give my opinion? Mm-hmm. Larry, the man who was execute- executed in Texas. So I think it was him. And there's many factors kind of pointing towards because how similar the Texas Melissa's murder was to Arkansas Melissa's murder. Mm-hmm. And the fact now I'm just keeping this in my head because I can't get it out of my head now that they both had Mickey Mouse watches that were missing. The fact that that's even like a thing is, is should be a big deal. What if he bought them the watches? Like, because it says that they most likely knew their killer and he was young enough. He was kind of, he was older than them, but still young enough to be around their age when the murder happened. So like he was married and he had girlfriends. So that already is like a little fishy. So what if he was the one that gave them the watches? Like that was like his present that he would give to girls or something like that. My thing with him is, can we even place him in Arkansas? Yeah, so they can't. They can't was. place him in Arkansas when she went missing. He was in Arkansas when she went missing. I don't know if uh. they can specifically place him in Fort Smith. I didn't. The source material didn't say specifically Fort Smith, but they said that they did have evidence that he was in Arkansas at the time. Too many coincidences. I wonder if she was another one of his girlfriends, right? If. And like Arkansas, Melissa didn't say anything and no one knew about it because he was freaking married. Yeah. This is why we don't keep secrets. Mm -hmm. Well, now now we all know this. Yeah. But that's, I'm just kind of thinking, uh, so this is definitely, y'all know I hate unsolved cases and you guys just love to do them. Um, And I keep a tally on it because I start going crazy and I go Mm -hmm. into like a black hole of doing research after we've talked about it. So I'm going to look into this because, first of all, I want to check out what the Innocence Project said about Larry. Um, But also just like there's too many coincidences. So in my head, I'm going to say it was Larry. He's dead anyways, so it doesn't really matter. But I kind of hope it was him, you know, like I hope it's not someone just out and about now. Mm -hmm. I agree. There was a really good documentary that I used as a source for this, and it's from a woman named LaDonna Humphrey, and she's an Arkansas native. I don't think she was friends with Melissa, but she had mutual friends and has just kind of taken on her case, and her film has a lot of rewards, and she's written a book called The Girl I Never Knew, and her documentary is called Uneven Ground, and it's on, I think it's on Amazon Prime, and it's really good. So check that out if you want to watch more about it. This is a good one. Okay. Yes. Who, this was a fan recommended story. Oh, yes. Okay. So this was recommended by Natalie. Okay. Go Natalie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So she asked me to check it out. I was like, I've never heard of that. It was that same night I was laying in bed and this case like started randomly playing on my YouTube and I was like, 
that's crazy. I have to look into this. I have to do it, which I mean, our everything listens to us talk nowadays anyways. (laughs) It probably was not randomly like playing on my YouTube, but I want to know what Natalie thinks. I know. Since she's the one that recommended the case, I want to know what she thinks happened. Yeah. Natalie, comment on our episode and let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. Do you know anything that we didn't talk about, you know? Yeah. She's also an Arkansas native. Good job, Holly. Thank you. So I'll just end with a quote from LaDonna and from her book. She said, I envision him a shadow-like figure, dark and dreadful, his confidence anchored in the predictability of a murder case, slowly growing cold. Am I obsessed? Probably, but someone needs to play the role of the tireless advocate for Melissa. And that is the case of Melissa Witt. All right, so um, now we can just jump right into our segment called Overtime, and we'll let Kate go first because Kate always goes first. Great. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. So uh, taking it straight back to Arkansas, here's the story. Um, This has been a year in the making, but I... (laughs) When I was looking up what kind of, because there were so many things that happened in the past week that I was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about for overtime. And so I was looking up some stories that like maybe I hadn't heard of. And um, this title popped out to me. So I'm just going to read the title to you guys. And I was like, okay, this is good stuff. Convicted rapist captured after escaping Arkansas prison with jet ski. And I, I remember this happening when do you okay living in Arkansas? Yeah, this is crazy. We were all in Arkansas when this happened. So, or I don't think I was, but you guys were. This is a really good one. So there is a man um, in Arkansas. His name was Samuel Hartman, and August 2022, he was convicted in Arkansas of raping his 14 year old stepdaughter. And um, I'm pretty sure when he was convicted, he was given life in prison at that point, or it was a really long sentence. And he was working as an inmate at the East Arkansas Regional Unit, which is kind of near Memphis. It's kind of on the borderline. And he was out doing work crew. And which I always will say, I'm, I'm a little sketched out with work crew. Anytime, anytime I hear stuff like that, because it's just shit can go down. So he was out with work crew and a vehicle approached the work crew and two women um, who were his mother and his wife got out of the car and started firing shots at the guards that were at the work crew. And while they were shooting the guards, Samuel, the prisoner, hopped into the car. The ladies got back in. And they drove off. Well, obviously, corrections officers started to pursue the three of them in this truck. And they get to the Mississippi River where they had pre-planned jet skis. So they got out of the truck, hopped on three jet skis, and peaced out. And obviously, corrections officers, not knowing they were about to be on a water pursuit, was not prepared for that. So they weren't able to follow them. Well, the jet skis were later found abandoned on the Mississippi River um, or the Mississippi side of the river. Well, a year later, um, we're now almost literally to the day, a year later, they finally found him and his wife and his mother and his mother's boyfriend. And they were all in West Virginia at a motel. They somehow within the past year, they were able to like tie them to the state of West Virginia. And I guess there were just like some sources that came out that they were at this motel. So they went and arrested all of them. 
the boyfriend of the mother was helping them like evade the police and stuff for the past year. So he (laughs) is back in prison and now is serving a life sentence. So I'm not sure if he was given that life sentence before, but man, oh man, what a story and what a getaway. A pretty elaborate plan. I'm confused as to they knew where the work crew was. Yeah, I always figured they wouldn't tell the prisoners where they're going that day to work. Right. (laughs) And like he hadn't been in prison long, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, I have no idea. So I'm very interested in that. So I might do some research and see like if anything comes out. This is new. So it's not, there's probably not a lot of detail, but yeah. Now they're all going to jail. Mm -hmm. And now they're all going to prison. So yeah, that's my story for today. I have a really funny, I mean, it's sad, but it's really funny because I love nothing more than dumb criminals. Yeah, love them. So woman down in South Florida, I guess in Miami-Dade County somewhere, Jasmine Paez, 18, was arrested for trying to hire a hitman to kill her three-year-old son. I don't even understand that. How does that even make sense? I don't even know. Apparently, she doesn't even have custody of her son or the son wasn't living with her. It was with the grandma. I don't know if it was her grandma or like the son's grandma, but um, she asked the hitman to, quote, get something done once and for all and to have him be taken far, far away and possibly be killed, but ASAP. But what's funny is this website, you can go to it. It's rentahitman.com. It's a parody website that this guy created. And he got this request on this website and he called the Miami-Dade police three times before they actually took him seriously. They kept telling him to call Crime Stoppers. Eventually, they took it seriously. They arrested her within a couple hours. But of course, I went on this website, which is very obviously a fake website. Yes, Um, I'm looking at it right now. It's also their temporary clothes due to funding shortages, so... Yeah, if you guys want to donate, um, a couple things I wanted to point out. You know, they are ensuring their 100% compliance with the HIPAA, the Hitman Information Privacy and Protection Act of 1964. There's even fake ads on the website for cash for turning in catalytic converters. There's reviews, <laughs> customer testimonials. And it's, you know, of course, it's run by the Guido family. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's discounts, military discounts, if you want. Well, the military. The mention code for an additional 10% discount is Cool Cats and Kittens. Yes, Carol Baskins. Carol Baskins, wrap around. Anyway, Jasmine, um, I guess, posted a $15,000 bond. Her dad has kind of come forward and says that, like, more stuff will come out. Apparently... She might have some mental issues, I think, clearly, but we'll see. This is too good. Really, really sad, though, of a story that a woman was going to hire a hitman to kill her three-year-old son. Like, yeah, and as fast as possible, once and for all, like, what did he ASAP. do to get that? Like, what's, what's the, the kid going to do? Kid's not going anywhere. That's really sad. But why kill the kid? That's South Florida for you. I'm so glad she chose to Google a hitman instead of just doing it herself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to Google like write a hitman because I don't want the police to come knocking on my door. But this is a funny website. It's definitely a spoof. Um, There's also a career page. So just letting you guys know. 
Okay, so I'm switching stuff up and I'm just going to talk about like what has been going on in my life. So as everybody knows, I'm trying to be vegan right now. <laughs> God, this I is, hate this. I don't know if the the listeners know that. I think that might have been post recording last. Oh, time. it was. It was. Okay. They, so Kate Holly's trying to be vegan. Yeah, Um, I did have some cheesed up last night. It's my first cave and came i'm at my mom's right now and yeah she made she made velveeta and rotel can you know you just cannot i had absolutely zero choice and i had some but you know what i mean is velveeta real cheese i don't know you know i don't think it is is it i mean it you have it's not even refrigerated that's a good point so Um, i don't really feel like i cheated that much um i'm running a triathlon next weekend a mini triathlon let me add and um i can't swim so that is gonna be so if i'm not here please continue on my legacy oh my god i forgot about this this is too good okay so the listeners not done this this was post recording last week first of all holly's vegan yeah it's obviously not turning out too well by the way i looked it up Velveeta isn't real cheese um so you're good on that end but um she also decided that she was going to do a triathlon um with her man and gave what yourself two weeks to try and yeah, if that, and I still haven't been doing anything. So um, we may live stream my triathlon. And I mean, if Can I get her. Try or, to find our GoPro and send it to her. Because yeah. you guys know, like, if you wear a GoPro, you can stream it from your phone. Yes. So we may, um, that may be a new segment of Over My Dead Pod if you guys want to watch me actually yeah. die. So. so if Holly does die during this triathlon, we'll have live footage of it. So live. I promise you guys, we will post it. We will yes. exploit the hell out of this. Absolutely. Yes, I'm going to make so much money. Yes. Make money from off of me, please. Yeah. Uh, in a way, I also hope it's like raining during your triathlon. Like, I just want it to be as shitty conditions as possible. Oh, me too. So that it's just, <laughs> you're just having the time of your life. I also don't want you to wear the GoPro. I want Luke to wear the GoPro so that mm-hmm. we can watch you. Yeah. Or have it on your head. Mountain, like facing towards myself. Like most people show like what's going on around them, you know, with a GoPro. But I want y'all to see my. Yeah. I think we should place bets on how many minutes in until Holly starts crying. Or, or drowning. In the car on the way there. Yes. Or drowning. Especially if it's I'm so scared. Someone's going to have to. That's the thing is like you can stop running. You can get off your bike. But like you're in the lake. It's in a lake. So what am I going to do? You know, I was going to say we need to mention the fact that the swimming part of your triathlon is in a lake. Yeah. Um, now, I'm just going to hold my breath. I think if I I'm just going to hold my breath and lay on my back and just make someone come rescue me. I yeah, will be the your breath though. Don't hold your breath. Just lay yeah, on your back. True. I will be you the should breathe. in this whole triathlon. If I don't cause a scene, I haven't done it right. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos, sources of the case, you can check out our blog on OverMyDeadPod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check out our social media at OverMyDeadPod. And we will see you next time with another thrilling case. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.